and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Where are you, Claire? I'm in Melija, which is a small city in Malta, which is a small island in the Mediterranean. Cool. What are you doing there? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm reading chapter nine of The Ethical Slot, uh, which is called Slot Styles. No way. I'm reading that also. I know. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you think of this chapter overall before we dive into it? Uh, I thought it was a good chapter. Um, we're following this trend in the second part of the book of more tangible skills, things that you need to know or think about in order to successfully accomplish polyamorous or non-monogamous relationships. Or any relationship. Any relationship, yeah. I was going to say like, a lot of these things are particularly important when you're doing multiple relationships. But for any person in any relationships of any kind, and as we've said before, everybody has more than one relationship of some kind. Like these are some really good skills overall, but we may touch on some things specifically how they relate to poly. Yeah. So before they even start listing the what they call the tools for successful mm-hmm. slushery, um, they ask the reader and therefore us, I guess, um, to think about the reasons why, like what they're expecting out of living their life a certain way. Um, which is irregardless of whether it's monogamous or non-monogamous. Like, why are you living the life? Why are you making the choices? What is your motivation to towards the way that you've decided to relate to other people? Um, they give some examples, and there's one particularly, like, for example, they say, I get relief from pressure. I don't have to fulfill every single thing my partner needs or wants, which means I don't have to try and be somebody I'm not. And I was like, oh, and I put a little tick. Mm-hmm. And then they said, Outside partners are an infusion of sexual juice into my primary relationship. And I circled it and wrote, gross. <laughs> I just think that's a really bad way to phrase that. Like, I could I could see how that would be a, a nice sentiment, except that calling it sexual juice just doesn't sound good. So, so visceral. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you, Sebastian, what your reasons are for choosing this path, which is the, the wording that is explicitly in this chapter, choosing your path. Yeah, I thought about that a lot reading this um, the first time I read it and then when I was rereading it a few days ago. And I don't know, I was never really in monogamous relationships over the course of my life. I was in casual relationships or on and off relationships. Um, but I think now being more deliberately poly and and why that that resonates with me is not wanting to like limit my relationships or to be defined by specific rules but being able to have relationships how i want um and i do like being able to meet different needs from people and and to get to have all these relationships and figure it out as i go and define them how i want with the people that are in my life in a way that works for all of us. Um, and I also feel like being able to have multiple close relationships and not have them defined certain ways. Like I have a lot of love to give and I love people. So this makes sense to me. It makes me happier. And I've been happier overall since being proactive and living my life this way. 
Oh, that's so nice. That's such a lovely sentiment. You like freedom, and I have so much love to give. I'm like, oh. What about you, Claire? You know, like I have to admit, when I was reading this chapter, I didn't. This didn't resonate with me at all because I don't feel like I ever sat down and like was like, now I will be poly. It was just. I mean, I've had monogamous and I've had non-monogamous relationships. Um, but I've always been very intentional in the way that I'm relating to people. And I think there's only been like a handful of times, if that, that I've been swept up and not been really thoughtful about, about those relationships. Um, and I think that that kind of brings me to like a really, like a bit of a gripe that I have with this, like the whole way through this chapter and also this book, they are putting some of their assumptions in. It's kind of like part manifesto of like why you should be non-monogamous. And one of the things that they put in here in this particular chapter is being what they call like a good slut, right? Being maybe in this case non-monogamous is a choice. It's about what you do. It's not about who you are. It's not like, like they even say right at the very beginning, great sluts are made, not born. Um, that that you you become a great slut through conscious effort and frequent practice. It's less about how you're born and like more about what like the practices that you're relating. So there is an ongoing academic discussion that we are going to need to touch on at some point in like a bonus episode about whether polyamory is a relational practice or whether it is a an identity, like a sexual identity. Yeah. And I I don't know they don't dig into this here, but they're definitely they're definitely assuming the former. They're assuming that polyamory and nominogamy are relational choices that somebody consciously makes. And that's valid and that's great. And I'm really happy with that. But there is a question of like, that's not the only way of categorizing polyamory. But I guess for the rest of the chapter it doesn't matter so much because like you could be born polyamorous as I kind of I guess what I'm saying is like I kind of feel like I, I'd be born polyamorous in a way. Like, this is just the way I think about it. It's not something that I've had to, um, like, choose in my relationships as consciously as they're making out to be in this book. But it doesn't mean that I was born a good polyamorous, right? Like, the, the tools they go on to present are still helpful. But I just really wanted to bring out this, this important point, which is that they're, they're making, a, a, like, an ontological statement here. Yeah, I mean, I we definitely if we dive into this, that could be a whole episode or two. Oh, um, we're gonna make it, and it best be an episode. We gonna make it. An I, I may, I may not touch on it, not because I don't have a lot of thoughts on it, also, but because I. Okay. That's all right. And I think for the purpose of this, it's whether it's it's a choice that you're making or it's an orientation, and it's not really a choice. It's just how you have always seen things, or whatever it is for you. If this is how you are actively living your life, then. We can talk about the skills and they're important skills to talk about regardless of how you got to needing them. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good point. So the first of the tools for successful slattery, as they call it, that they demonstrate here or that they present here is communication, at which point I put five exclamation points after it. <laughs> because it's always, like I swear, every single post, every single blog, every single podcast, every single book comes down to communication yeah but is that a bad thing or is it, does that underlie the fact that people don't learn how to communicate well generally in their relationships well actually i think the reason why is because we're not really sure what you mean by communication it's like a good catch-all term and mm. i think it is confusing to like to know exactly what we mean by that 
like is communicating just talking at each other all the time and they kind of break it down a little bit here by obviously making a distinction between um listening and talking so they make a very clear distinction in this paragraph between um a technique for good listening and then allowing that to clarify your response before you speak and similarly if you're the one speaking take time and effort to be clear and thorough with your explanation before you say it so most of the the work of that communication is is not happening um in a back and forth like we're doing in this podcast right so a lot of a lot of that is happening over a period of time it's it's taking a lot longer than i think what a normal conversation does because often a normal conversation between two people is just them speaking at each other yeah i agree i mean i think the distinction is you know, we have to talk about not not just communicating, but how do you communicate well and develop effective communication skills? Um, one of the things that I highlighted in there as part of communication and sort of underlies monogamous centric thinking, like it's not fair to expect your partner to read your mind. This idea that if you're like involved with somebody and really close, like you know what the other person is thinking. Um, and that may be true. Sometimes you may have really better insights into what the other person is thinking because you know them but you shouldn't assume that or that your partner knows what you're thinking. So making sure that you're still communicating effectively what you're thinking and, and what your needs are or what is going on and, and what you're trying to tell them and not assuming that they're just going to be able to fill in the gaps if you don't communicate everything. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important about that is if you're assuming you know what the other person is going to say to you or what the other person needs to say to you, you're disenfranchising them. You're disempowering them from from actually owning their that um feeling or that you know um request or those needs or whatever it is that they that they want to communicate if you're assuming that you don't that, that you know better as like let's imagine you have their father or their uh husband or their wife or their girlfriend or their sister right any relationship if you're assuming that you know what the other person's going to say in a conversation you're disenfranchising that person from being able to say whatever they want from being able to surprise you. And after all, that's kind of half the reason we end up with being in conversations is because we want to be surprised. We don't just get into idle chit-chatter for fun, right? <laughs> so um, I think that that <laughs> sometimes listen to all the outtakes. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it was unsurprising for me that, tool, that the first tool that they talk about was communication. Yeah, me too. Um, but I think it's, it's important to recognize what what communication is and, and how you use that effectively versus just talking to each other. Um, so I guess now that we've talked about what good communication looks like, we can move on to the next one, which is emotional honesty yeah. and having emotional honesty with your partners. Snaps. Yes. Snaps for emotional honesty. It's so important, so underrated for everyone, even if you're single, even if you're old, mm -hmm. young, whatever. Be emotionally honest. I was, I was... I was excited by this heading. I was less excited by the things that went after it, <laughs> like the essence of this um, this tool. I don't think I was. They didn't put that much in there. It was a pretty short yeah. blurb. Um, I mean, they basically say here that they very much center around, for example, reassurance. So being emotionally honest about when you need reassurance from your partner and not being afraid to ask. Um, and then he so in in this hypothetical um he was like there was a he and there's a she and he was willing to ask for reassurance and 
he trusted her to tell the truth about her feelings and therefore he could be assured. And I really wish I'd chosen a different hypothetical to explain this because I just feel like there's so much more to emotional honesty than like, I'm worried, make me feel better. You have nothing to worry about. Oh, I feel better now. I think that's such a, a, a kind of a, a boring example of emotional honesty. I think uh, they are obviously going to speak more about complex emotional profiles like jealousy later but but even if it's just things like I am to be emotionally honest with myself I'm aware that I have this insecurity about my body and in this particular instance before we go to this particular play party I want to raise it with one of the partners so that they can not just blindly reassure me that my butt looks great but to be like okay cool how can we navigate that would you like to change what, what we're wearing? Would you like to not do some acts or do some acts here? Would you like to not go at all? I, that, would, that for me would have been a better, or not a better, but like a more interesting example of like a time when if you recognize an uh, honest emotion within yourself and honestly communicate it, you can control the outcome of that emotional journey that you're on. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, what I wanted to add on that is it's emotional honesty with, with others, but also emotional honesty with yourself, especially about these uh, you know, different, deeper, more complex emotions, like you mentioned, jealousy and, and insecurities and acknowledging those things within yourself and being recognizing them within yourself, being honest with yourself, and then when needed and when appropriate, being able to have that honesty with, with a partner or other partners um, so that they can understand what's going on not necessarily even being emotionally honest to get reassurance or to get something back to fix it, but just so that they can be aware and know it's know where you're at. Yeah, that is such a good distinction to be emotionally honest with yourself and emotionally honest with others. And to be clear, they don't have to be the same thing. Like I have, I actually have an example today. I was just very, very irritable today and I posted something and I got a couple of comments back and they were from friends. They were from close friends. They weren't negative, but I felt really um, like attacked. But I could be emotionally honest with myself and be like, okay, you're feeling really attacked. But I don't have to then go to them and be like, just so you know, I feel attacked. Like, I, I can be emotionally honest with myself and be like, okay, this is how I'm feeling. And actually, it was just an extension of being irritable and cold and tired and feeling vulnerable. And they have no reason to know that. But like, I don't have to tell everyone else that I'm in a relationship, any relationship with. I don't need to tell them every single emotion that I'm honestly feeling. Absolutely. But, but then if I do choose to do that, at least it can be taken honestly, because you already know that I've done my thinking about it as much as possible. Can I share another example that pops into my mind on that same vein? Yeah, 100%. Especially in multiple relationships is, um, and we're going to touch on I'm sure, a lot of this later, but you know, jealousy or insecurities are real things that happen to people. Even the, the best, most experienced poly person will experience some of those feelings at some point, probably. Because people are people and emotions happen. Um, and being able to be honest with yourself, if you have a moment like that where you're feeling jealous or insecure or concerned about something, and taking a step back and saying, okay, I'm feeling like this. I, I am feeling like that and not trying to pretend that you aren't. And then saying, okay, why? Mm. And, and taking that step back is really important for yourself first to be emotionally honest with yourself. And then if you do that, 
if the situation calls for it, then you've done that and can take it to whoever else is involved in a thoughtful way mm -hmm. and, and have some type of emotional honesty with them once you've thought about it. Yeah. So not quashing emotions, but, but owning that people have emotions and sometimes they're complicated and don't make sense and then figuring out how to address them and what they actually mean. Yeah, honestly. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. Um, okay, so the third tool they have, the third tool as a slot that you have in your metaphorical tool belt um, <laughs> uh, is the hammer of affection. They don't call it that. They just call it affection. But I do think that that would be a nice one to be a hammer. Um, this... Pound with affection. Oh, that sounds... <laughs> Thank you so much. But... Um, Again, it's quite a short paragraph. They're just introducing the idea that, um, like, kind of coming up with ways in which to make your partner feel loved and adored and appreciated and, uh, you know, to affect that in the other person, those good feelings, um, which is essentially what affection means. Um, they recommend lots of hugging, touching, verbal affections, sincere flattery, and gifts. But I guess you could do whatever helps someone feel um, really secure and connected with you. And I actually thought a lot here about um, love languages, which is super old now. Do you know about this? I was about to bring up the love languages. Oh, awesome. Well, I will just say that it was first coined in 1992 by Gary Chapman, and I'm going to let you explain what they are for everyone. Um, I haven't done quite the research that you have. I just, I'm really... I've read about them before and done that quiz. Um, but the love languages is this idea that that everybody has different ways or different preferences of showing and um, receiving love and affection from others. Um, so that can be things like giving gifts or words of affirmation, uh, physical touch, um, acts of service and devotion, um, and quality time. So there's different ways of you know, some people really want, like, they feel loved if you give them something. Other people really want physical touch. And sometimes people's love languages for giving and receiving are the same. I myself know, like, I'm a pretty physically touchy person. Like, I like to hold hands and I like to cuddle. Uh, and that is both how, both how I express love to others and how I feel loved by others. Um, but other people may may want to give gifts as a way of showing love, but really like to receive words of affirmation. Um, not that any one of these is more or less valid or more or less loving. It's just that different people react to them different ways. And knowing that about your partners and, and other relationships is a really good thing to be mindful of in order to understand why people may not feel like they're receiving affection or, or it can lead to confusion with people if you have very different love languages, for example. Yeah, so like, for example, I might be... Um like doing like coming home let's say to a shared space that I'm I'm with with my like a partner and they have uh cleaned the kitchen and I just am like thanks clean the kitchen cool that was that was a, a chore that needed to be done and you did it because you live here as well but for them that was like uh, an act of service or devotion that is one of the languages of love. So they were actually through doing that, that they were doing uh, like a, an act of love. They were trying to show me affection, but I wasn't registering it as affection because I register things like, I don't know, let's say quality time. 
as affection. And it can work the other way. So then let's say that I decide to not go out with friends so I can spend the evening in, and this person is like, oh, cool. They just didn't feel like going out. And I have to be like, no, this is the way that I'm showing you that I love you through making time that is quality and, and penciled in for you. And I actually think that there, that this is a good, convers- like good, maybe like you don't have to use those five languages, but being able to just say like, I'm doing this for these reasons to make you feel this. And if this isn't making you feel like that, please tell me ways that I can make you feel connected to me or appreciated or whatever. Um, so it's definitely like a wider discussion than than that but the tool is still making the other person understand your affection for them definitely and i would add on that point like this goes a little bit back to what we said about communication before um everything goes back to communication <laughs> but well i guess just my point with bringing up communication um like you with your example of cleaning the kitchen or, or staying in um is in that breakdown of communication where you're assuming what the other person is thinking or, or going to say or acting mm-hmm. You could, if you misinterpret that, be really offended that they didn't perceive that love language. And being able to be honest and communicate openly and say, you talk about this and how to understand those things is helpful so that you don't have a breakdown or have hurt feelings when you do something that you thought was really lovely and the other person or people did not perceive it in the same way. Mm. Okay, so moving on to the next one, which was a surprise for me, they call this one faithfulness. What did you think of this of this section? Um, I thought that you were going to have things to say on this. Um, because the, first thing it, <laughs> the first thing it does is talk about primacy. But um, my thought on this, I mean, more broadly is, you know, faithfulness. The, I do see stuff online where they talk about, you know, people are poly, so they don't have to be faithful or they don't they can get away with stuff, which is not how I think of it. And so reading about faithfulness is no matter how many relationships you're in with whoever you are, it's about still supporting the relationship you're in and the the, the expectations of, that have been set in those relationships, no matter what other relationships you have. And that's what I took out of this as, as faithfulness in the polyamory, in the context of polyamory is... Um, making sure to continue to be involved in the relationships you you already have i think that you are you're right that i i immediately got like the hair on the back of my neck went up because they start this section by talking about basically hierarchical relationships so if you have somebody that you are primary like that you consider to be your primary how do you stay faithful to that person despite the fact that you have other people in your life or might have other people in your life is there certain sexual behaviors or um, habitual behaviors that you that you only do with that person and, and therefore are protected, if you like, within that didactic structure? And as someone who doesn't have hierarchies in my relationships, that like seems uh, like a really weird notion to me. And here's why: because I'm me all the time. It's not like there are versions of me going off with different people. Let's say I'm in two relationships. I'm still me in those two relationships. And I'm still, like, going to like the same things. And I'm still going to, like, fundamentally be this, the, the same person. Like, for example, I have really, really big problems sleeping. That doesn't stop when I'm with somebody but not with somebody else. So it would seem strange to me to be like, well, I can't sleep over with you despite the fact that that would make me, make me sleep better because that's something that's like for some reason protected over here. And even if I'm not doing, uh, doing it consciously, 
I found that there are some things that come out in relationships and they are repeated. So for example, like nicknames, um, it's usually something that people tend to be very protective about. And I can understand why, because it's a kind of you're earmarking this particular um, affection or this particular connection, uh, and you're, you're in some way making it special and everything. But also, like, I'm a small person. A lot of my nicknames revolve around the fact that I'm small. So th th that's two examples of, like, ways in which faithfulness from one relationship to another can be protected. And neither of them I've ever found as being particularly applicable to me. But so basically, after reading this section, I wrote, does this function outside of hierarchies? Because their whole example here is talking about pay, paying attention to relationships, making sure people know that they are loved. But that's affection. Faithfulness is about having a specific way that you show this person that you love them, and you only do that particular thing with that person. And I don't really have... Like my, my version of polyamory doesn't really have that in it. it. It does preface this with it's more about having primary relationships. But I would say, I mean, this may be wrong, but even for you, there may be a different way that you approach like your long-term relationships versus new ones. And for me, a lot of the thoughts on this led into the next one on limit setting and thinking about boundaries. Um, and mostly to be that if you create boundaries or you have certain expectations of a relationship that you are already in that those things are respected um even if you're if you enter or begin a new relationship that the the those expectations that are already there are maintained and aren't aren't that don't just get changed if somebody else comes along does that make sense yeah, I think I just, I, I, I mean, I think this is a, I think we just kind of have to agree to disagree on this one because I, I think that the, the issues to do with limit setting, which is the next tool, I guess we can just go into that one, but it's the next tool they talk about here is about one of the things that you need in any relationship, right, is a clear idea of what your limits are as a person and the limits that you want to have in this relationship, which might be different if you have multiple relationships. And obviously those are important. Whether or not those are forever, I think, is, is a different question, and it's a different tool, and it's a much longer discussion. So in this, they're talking about limits can be about sex, which is like, for example, safe sex, consent, that sort of thing. That's very, very important. Yeah. Like you can't underplay how important that is. But they can also be about relationship styles, frequency of contact, intensity of connection. And they encourage people to go through the ethical dilemmas and, and think about how you would react to them personally to make sure that you're aware of your own limits. And that's really, really good tool to do because then when you know what your limits are, you can start to ask people what they want. And then if they bring up something that's like, I don't know, oh, I want to try this, I don't know, this position or oh, I want to, I wanna, you know, go to this <laughs> restaurant i don't know right uh, you can say no or yes but they will still feel comfortable knowing that you're not going to get pressured into anything or anything else like that um and that's a really good tool i really like this tool i think this one's really important they say here only when everyone's limits are out in the open do you become free to ask for your dearest fantasies secure in the knowledge that if your friend doesn't want to they won't and i think what's important to me about this is this is limit setting for yourself like knowing your own limits yes not putting limits on other people 
right? So I know what my limits are, maybe about what sexual acts I want to do or how I feel about certain living situations or um, other behaviors or safer sex, but those are my limits. And then I can share those with you or any other partner. And then we, you can decide if, you know, if there's something that's contrary, then we can talk about how to navigate that. But I'm not saying you can't do this. I'm saying this is, this is my limit. And then you can respond. Yeah. I have to say from personal experience, that bit that I just read about how then having clear limits actually encourages more, um, like honesty from everyone else. I've seen that firsthand. Like I frequently, um, have had experiences where where I am the one who knows the limits that I'm willing to to go to, but the other person now feels inspired to to ask for something. Um, I'm talking specifically sexually, but I think it could also be. I mean, it's also happens emotionally. Like I'm like, this is what I can give you right now, and the other person is actually empowered in a way. Being like, oh well, if you can just say what you can and can't do, then I can say what I can and can't want. If you can do that, I can do that. And that's really, really great to, to see in my relationships. I really love that. I love, I love inspiring that. Yeah. And I would add my, my one other thought on this is why it's so important in this context is that in a monogamous context, a lot of the limits are preset, like a lot of uh, limits on for individuals within a relationship are preset about what is and isn't okay, just culturally defined. Whereas mm-hmm. in a non-monogamous context, everything is up for, you know, everything depends on each individual. Um, so you really have to be honest with yourself about what your limits are um, before you can start having those limits, limits be impacted by other people. Yeah, that's such a good point. You're so smart. Oh, thanks. I try. <laughs> well, then, um, can we move on to the next one, do you think? Yeah, we can move on to the next one. You're going to love this. The next one is planning. Fucking um, plan. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> Um, I, have, I have had obviously very strong views about this and I know that they're going to go into um, the one part of this I like they are going to go into it we are going to go into it in episode 16 which is called embracing conflict but maybe you should present this tool considering I refuse to engage in it <laughs> well and coming off of our last one about limit setting like I almost feel like this sort of ties into it and um, you know not wanting to put certain limits on things but I mean, for me, planning is more about, we talked about before, like there are, there are infinite resources and there are finite resources. Um, time is a finite resource. And if you have a job and you need to sleep as we often do and, and eat and take care of a house and maintain multiple relationships, like things are, time is finite. Um, and the more relationships you're trying to balance, the, the more finite it becomes. So for me, planning is not about trying to structure everything. Um, but the fact is that you need to have some sort of plan to keep everything going. Um, they have this line, mundane reality has a tendency to get in the way of such important stuff um, as conversations, sex, recreation, family, time, or fights. Um, and they talk about, we've talked about this before. People really like to have Google calendars. That's like a big. Oh, that is my sound when I know I meant to Google calendar. And I don't. So, and for the record, like I have my own calendars. Um, I've never shared a calendar with other people. I mean, I have a, a calendar that has my work schedule and I have a personal calendar for when I have stuff going on. Wait, but okay. How many people have access to that? And like, as they suggest here, everyone can enter appointments and see what other appointments others have made. And I'm like, 
to put? Oh, just me. Okay. So the only reason I can see to have a shared calendar with somebody is if we were to live together and share, a, like, say, own a house together or rent an apartment together, and there were, like, shared responsibilities. Not like you might do with a flatmate. Yeah. Like, I mean, you could do that with a flatmate or you could do that with a partner, but like that I can understand. Um, and it depends on the people too. Okay. Anyway, everyone that's listened to this podcast by now will know that I espouse more of like respect everyone else's realities, stay flexible and just like, for God's sake, don't open a Google calendar. But Janet and Dossie, they're really set on, um, on this and I, I'm sure that they have plenty more experience of this working for them than I could ever fathom. So I will acknowledge that it might be a helpful tool for some slugs. Yeah. We do, do we want to leave it at that? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. The next one is great. I think it's very similar to emotional honesty, which we were talking about today earlier. And it very similar as well to limit setting because it relates to knowing yourself. Um, so this is basically uh to do with the unpacking of the garbage stuff that we carry around with us subconsciously things that bring us negative attitudes towards our bodies or sex or relationships or gender loads of things that have been kind of deeply set into us and they, they're going to touch on shame later on but i think this tool of knowing yourself I like that they demonstrate this as a process of getting to know yourself. It's a process. It doesn't have an endpoint when all my garbage has been taken away. And they they kind of flag some ways of doing that. They talk about engaging in reading, uh, which I guess would include this book. Therapy, which is a very formalized way of, of doing it and potentially kind of difficult for everyone to get. Uh, but also just talking and being open to new ideas. And they characterize this particular tool as hard work. And I would say, yeah, it is. It is hard work, but it is worth it. Like nothing that has ever been easy has been worth doing. Um, and so that's my presentation of that tool. And I love it. And I have absolutely nothing bad to say about it, apart from I wanted it to be longer. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I don't have anything anything to add on that. It's, it, it is hard work. And it is well worth doing. Yeah, let's let's strip ourselves, strip ourselves of of the, well, strip ourselves of all of our clothing, but also all of our bad attitudes and our prejudices and our discrimination, and work on building the person we want to be. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to talk about the next one, or I shall can... I talk about? That? I got it. The next one. Okay. A little bit related, but is owning your feelings. And I think this is another really important one. It ties a little bit to communication. It ties a little bit to um, emotional honesty. But this is now not emotional honesty with yourself, but everybody has feelings. And you have to, in a conversation or in a relationship, you have to own the things that you're feeling. You have to take ownership of the fact that you're feeling those things and that nobody else is making you feel that. I think that's something that people say a lot, like somebody does something and you're like, well, you're making me feel bad. And if you're in a loving relationship, nobody's trying to make each other feel bad. Something may, something may have led you to feel bad, but it wasn't, it starts to put blame on it. And what you feel is a response inside of you. It's determined inside of you. And that's the first step to having productive and healthy conversations. Yeah. I think there is just a very important caveat here, which is that we're assuming 
a lack of abuse. Like we're not, we're assuming you're outside of abusive context because there is obviously something to be said here about gaslighting, which we're not going to go into for time constraint reasons. So before you begin to own your own feelings, if you feel constantly shit around somebody, we strongly encourage you to check in with your people around you, check that you might not be in a situation that's potentially abusive. And then there are other resources that I'm sure we can flag for that. But I think that that is something for another time because it's quite, um, it's quite a different discussion to have with yourself if you are beginning to feel like you're in a, an emotionally abusive place. Um, and in that situation, if you were to try and like own your feelings and be like, okay, but I'm feeling bad and I'm making that choice and it's my fault, then that's actually could, if you're being gaslit, if you're being gaslit at the same time, that can be potentially a really dangerous place to end up in your head. So that's important to mention, I think. Yeah, that's a very good and important distinction. And I should have made it first. Um, but assuming that none of that's the case and you're not in a, in a, an abusive relationship or anything like that, and you are in a healthy and loving relationship, then you should own your feelings and take responsibility for how you feel. So even if you feel bad and you're in a fight or whatever is going on or you're disagreeing, those are still your feelings. And even though it might be easier to put them on somebody else and blame them, that's not healthy. And it's also disempowering yourself to solve whatever's going on. Because if it's somebody else's fault, then they have to fix it. Whereas if you own your own feelings, you have the power to work on it and to improve or to resolve the situation. And that's work that you can do instead of having to have to wait for somebody else to do something that they can't do anyway. So I, I really liked this, this tool and the way that they present it. I think that they should have, because they, they don't make a note here about emotional abuse. And I think that they should have. It I think this was a little mm -hmm. bit dangerous to put this in here without that. But what I will also say is I think they might be sneaking and a, like a manifesto point in again, because they open this by saying the basic precept of intimate communication is that each person owns their own feelings. And I actually don't think that that is what most people believe. I think most people believe like people make emotions happen in me. It's like a, like th this is, this is something people have to learn. And I've seen firsthand that this can be one of the most difficult things to get your head around and most difficult things to constantly do because obviously you're constantly feeling things. And so you constantly have to own those feelings. And so it's not like, it's not like limit setting or planning where like you can kind of check in once a month, let's say, and just be like, yep, my limits are still the same and my plan is on track. This is something you have to do like daily, like every minute. And I don't think that most people actually do believe this. I think the, the general social contract seems to operate in like, well, you did this thing to me that made me feel this way. And now revenge happens. Or for example, you did this thing that made me feel good and now reward happens. And I think that that is a, is a precept that they are, they're just, they're assuming that we can just be like, but that, but that's wrong. With absolutely no, like that, do you know what I mean? They're kind of like slipping that as that manifesto point in and just being like, okay, but that's not it without giving you enough time to kind of like unpack, I guess, all of the, the stuff that you've been carrying around with you about how emotions are, are inside you. I think what's important here is that they're assuming that you are agreeing that emotions are inspired, but not created by somebody else. They're inspired by somebody else. 
So let's say you, Sebastian, make me really happy. You have inspired happiness, and I'm letting myself feel happy. And assuming, obviously, like how, like happy, healthy me, happy, healthy relationship, safe, sane, and consensual. That's that's good thing. And then if you did something that made me feel sad, you've inspired sadness. But I'm letting myself feel sad, and I need to own that I feel sad in the same way that I own that I feel happy. But she's assuming that we already agree with that, and I'm not sure that they do the necessary philosophical work to kind of like convince us to drop the commonly held view that like. Emotions are not inspired, they're caused. You, you make me happy, end of story. You're, you make me sad, end of story. There's not that two-step stage. So whilst I agree with them, I think it's important to say, like, they snuck a manifesto point in here. For me, the, the broader takeaway is, um, at the end of the day, they're your emotions and your feelings that you have control over. You can decide what to do with them or if you want to feel them or how to feel them. And that taking that ownership of them gives you a lot more power to move forward. Okay, so moving on to the next, there's two more tools that they talk about here. The next one is going easy on yourself, which I like. Um, they're basically pointing out that everyone makes mistakes. You will make mistakes. You'll encounter myths and beliefs that you didn't realize that you had. You'll you'll trip over problems that you didn't even know were going to come up. Like you're you're not a perfect person. And you just need to kind of like, well, I think they even say cut, cut yourself some slack. <laughs> and I wrote here, like, there's no pro-poly person. And then I realized there are lots of people who are professionally poly these days. There are lots of, like, people where that's, that's, like, what they're known for, like, semi-famous people who, like, go and run conferences and do the whole speaking circuit in the U.S. But even those pro people, I think, are pretty upfront about the fact that, like, sometimes they fuck up. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I mean, Monogamy has been a thing for hundreds of years and people still fuck up at that. Yeah, I think that's also like a really good thing. It's like just because you fuck up doesn't mean that you should stop trying. Yeah. Right. They, uh, I like their acronym at the end, AFOG, um, another opportunity for growth. We need to get like a beeper because we swear a lot. <laughs> it's an adult thing podcast. It's the least of the things we talk about. <laughs> that's a really good point. That's the <laughs> gonna beep out one curse word while we talk about orgies and, and uh, group sex. Okay, so the final tool that they talk about here is telling the truth. And yeah, I, I struggle to see how this is necessarily different from emotional honesty plus communication. Um, I basically what the way that they phrase it here is that you must speak your own truth first to yourself and then to those around you. And pretending that you're great, for example, when you're in agony, will not make you a better slut. It will make you bitterly unhappy, and it will make those who care for you even more unhappy. So, again, I don't necessarily see the difference in this tool, which they are delineating separately for emotional honesty and communication. But I guess it's like you've put those two things together. Yeah. I think maybe, right. it's, maybe it's just an overarching recap. I mean, there's a difference between being emotionally honest with yourself and, you know, sharing those things with other people, I guess. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that this is entirely different, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. This is not such a big swing from what we've talked about. Yeah. I don't think that it's, it's adding as much to this as say, uh, so I came up with a couple of skills that they don't put in here. Um, okay. I, I had saying sorry. So the art of saying sorry properly and executing a sorry correctly 
is a very helpful one. Um, so like, I guess in that situation, you would only say sorry when you actually felt sorry, you would explain why you felt sorry and for what actions you did and how you were going to rectify it. I think that would have been a really helpful tool for this pin here instead of telling the truth, because I think that that is important and that's something that you have to also learn. People just say sorry a lot and I don't think it's necessarily um, used. Like it's a tool that people overuse almost. Um, and the other one that I thought about was uh, defining. So another tool that I think they, they could have put in here, I guess it's kind of like communication. I guess it's kind of what I was getting at is there is a, a level of work that you have to do with people that you're having these very difficult potential discussions with. Um, like let's say your wife and you are talking about opening marriage. There needs to be a level before communication where you just define words you're using, especially when you're using them to describe very specific things. And sometimes that's introducing new words, so like compersion, for example. But it might also be things like, well, when I'm talking about love, this is what I mean. And maybe I need to be clearer about what I mean, like love that's, that's uh, similar to like lust or love that's similar to um, storge in, in the Greek, right? They had five words for love. So do, doing yeah. that work basically to of any word that you're going to be using to have these discussions with yourself or with others, having a tool listed in here, which they don't have, but would I wish they did, would be defining that word and making sure that the person that you're having a discussion with, even if it's just you, making sure that you're clear on how you're using that word. I think that would have been helpful to have in here as well. Did, were there any tools that you thought they, they could have added into the slot skill repertoire? I mean, I, I thought of some things that sort of, like things to highlight that, that fall under these categories. You know, one, one that's exactly, me, you know, we had going easy on yourself. Um, and I think that to a certain degree, there's, there's also going easy on each other as you're figuring these things out, sort of flexibility or, um, and I, I think it ties to a couple of them with going easy on yourself and limit setting yeah. and emotional honesty um, is that sort of flexibility that um, something we've said a lot, like there is no playbook, I guess, except for this book on how to do this. And each, each relationship is figuring out how to navigate the situation. There is literally a playbook. We're literally reading, We're literally reading it. <laughs> so many ways. There's... <laughs> Um, it's actually interesting that you say forgiveness though because it's actually one of the things I wrote down next to going easy on yourself because I realized like I love myself which makes it really easy for me to love other people and they say in here knowing loving and respecting yourself is an absolute prerequisite for knowing loving and respecting someone else and what I realized is that I'm really bad at forgiving myself and by extension I'm really bad at forgiving other people I, I give them about as much slack as I give myself, just like I give other people as much love as I give myself. On the one hand, that's so little, and on the other, that's so big. Does that make sense? It's just... Yeah. Yeah, so the, I think forgiving would be also, like, they could have separated it and been like, okay, going easy on yourself, as you said, but also forgiving other people when they fuck up a little bit, to a degree. That's a good shout-out. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Are we done going over the tools? I think so. I can add one other thing sort of at the end. Yeah. Into some of the stuff we said. Um, I mean, it's our podcast. We can literally do whatever we want. Whatever we want. Um, but going along with all of that, and again, this is with the caveat, assuming you're in a, in a loving 
safe, healthy, consensual relationship, and there is no abuse or anything. Um, but assuming the best of everybody, and this ties into blame and owning your feelings and a lot of things, but, you know, culture, society, whatever, it tells us to blame people for things and or to hold other people accountable for things and to, to, to put blame. And a lot of things lead us to, to blame others for where we're at um, or to, you know, put the responsibility of something on somebody else. And I think that if you go into every relationship and every interaction that you have with other people, expecting the best and expecting love and, and with that lens, it can help you avoid some of those negative feelings. If you, if you remind yourself at every point, no matter what's going on, like we love each other and everybody has the best intent, that can be helpful. God, you sound like such a hippie and I love it. Um, okay. Cool. So we now have some homework. Um, I'm done with there no more homework. <laughs> Regular listeners will remember that um, Dossie and Janet, and you'll notice I can now say her name, um, they give us these um, exercises to do throughout the, paper, throughout the book, and they present one here in this chapter called Some Affirmations to Try. And they give us eight affirmations, but encourage us to make more. And they encourage us to write them down, post them on the refrigerator, walk around with them in their pocket. Um, when you feel you need to, just stand in front of the mirror and tell them to yourself. And I think this is very like The Secret. <laughs> Did you ever hear about that book? I've heard of that book. I'm not more familiar with it than having heard of it, though. Okay, well, it's like a pop uh, psychology book, basically, about how if you if you uh, affirm something enough, the universe will give it back to you. We're not going to go into my very little bit dismissive review of The Secret right now, but it's kind of like what they're saying here. And I don't think trying that ever necessarily hurt anybody. So uh, I suggest, unlike the other exercises which we could do live here on the podcast, I suggest that we take these affirmations and we choose the one that's most helpful for us out of these eight, which I'm going to read. And then at the end of this part of this mini of this season, we will report back as to whether this exercise worked <laughs> or not. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. Do you, can you read them? Because everyone's hearing my voice too much. Sure. Um, I will read them. And as Claire said, if you have one that resonates with you, or if you come up with another one, that's not one of these eight, use that. So here we go. First one is I deserve love. My body is sexy just the way it is. I ask for whatever I want and say no to whatever I don't want. I can turn difficulties into opportunities for growth. Each new connection expands me. I contain all I need for a life full of delight. Sex is a beautiful expression of my loving spirit. I am on my personal path to ecstasy. Thank you. Maybe we could like release those as like voice notes because maybe people would believe them coming from you more than they come from themselves. Oh. Well, people work that way, you know, like often, often we don't make affirmations to ourselves with the same strength that we make affirmations to other people. Like, I think mostly like if I was to say to you, um, you deserve love, for example, which is the first one. 
if I say that to you, as someone who's been in your life now for what, like two and a half years, and who like deeply cares about you, and is obviously like providing love in some way to you, you will believe that more than to yourself, despite the fact that you've been in your life for like 27 years. <laughs> yeah, like we we weirdly we really believe the affirmations other people give but I think us. Because... Sometimes sometimes more than the than ones that we give ourselves. And that's very strange to me. Really? Um but I guess but yeah, it's really weird to me. But I think by the end of this of this part two, when we've carried around one of these with us, maybe we'll feel differently about ourselves. And if we have, then I'm gonna report back on this podcast that it totally worked. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't, then I'm gonna report back on this podcast that it did not work. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it, it makes total sense to me that affirmations from others are stronger because if you don't, if you aren't feeling love for yourself or that you don't deserve love, your head is already there. And, you know, telling yourself that doesn't really matter because in your mind, you don't believe it. If somebody else, especially somebody that's close to you comes and tells you that like as an external voice, it, it feels more real. But I guess the point of these affirmations is that you say them enough that they change the way that you're thinking, right? right? So that's the that, that's the idea. Yeah. So let's see. We'll try it out, and then we can report back at the end of uh, part two. Yeah. On, on if it if it manifested itself. Okay. So that then brings us to the end of the chapter, and they have another um, snapshot vignette. So this vignette is called A Brief History of Shame, and it talks about the fact that every one of us has grown up with, you know, different atmospheres and different learnings and experiences that have taught us to feel shame about different things. Um, They highlight here, especially about our bodies and sex, and that culture really puts a lot of stigma and shame about sexuality and, um, like, things like masturbation and nudity Um, especially in Western cultures, especially in the States, that's very true. Um, It's very stigmatized and people are taught to feel really ashamed of that. Um, And, you know, as we grow older, we really need to start examining that and trying to understand it and to rethink it. Yeah. And I think the reason why we need to start doing that should be self-explanatory because feeling ashamed is not a nice feeling. And, I only raise that because I feel like they they just assume that again they're just assuming that everyone is like ah like that there is a theory in social in social contract theory that like that shame is required in societies to reinforce the correct ways in which our society can function. So again, they they are sneaking in an assumption here that shame is a bad thing, and they're they're assuming that because shame feels shit. Uh, I happen to agree. But I'm also, I, I'm not deluded enough to think that everyone listening to this or right, maybe everyone that read this book will come across this concept that shame is bad and immediately be like, yeah. So we're just going to say shame doesn't feel good. And so what do we do about it? How do we unlearn the things that make us feel bad? And they suggest, especially Dossie, they suggest curiosity. Yeah, I like that. Um that instead of being ashamed of something, especially something unknown or you're not comfortable with, to be curious about it and to let you wonder about things and and push yourself to try new things um, or to question those 
the things that you're ashamed about or why you're ashamed about them. They tie a lot of this back to sexual exploration, um, which I think makes sense because that's a pretty big shame, shameful area in the world. Um, but that if instead of being ashamed of things, you're curious about it and why you're drawn to it, you might learn something new or find something that you really enjoy. Or you might not, but at least you tried it. Isn't that better than feeling bad and ashamed? Yeah, I mean, they they explicitly say here that um, giving giving ourselves a space to kind of like be playful with our curiosity when it comes to sex is um, obviously quite quite a comforting experience for some people, and if done correctly, should never necessarily make the shame feel worse, right? Like you already feel ashamed about I don't know, let's say. Um, you're like having your top off, right? Or wanting a specific kink. You already feel ashamed about that. What's the harm? Why? Right? How could you actually feel worse than in a safe and consensual and sane environment expressing that curio- that and in a term of curiosity? So you want a specific kink. You you're ashamed of liking it. What if you could just in this space turn that into a, an object of curiosity? Why do I like this? And what really would be the worst thing that would happen if you explored that in, again, a safe, sane, consensual manner? It won't be worse than the initial shame that you felt, the deeply buried, kind of like quiet, guilty feeling that that people seem to to carry around with them, according to Dossie and Janet. Um, And Dossie specifically thinks that uh, the orgasm can be a great, what does she call it, injection of life force which I remember again that Dossie is a huge hippie and I love her for it. Um, but but chemically, chemically an orgasm does induce feelings of comfort and happiness and closeness and reassurance. And in that, in if it happens following a play, specifically around a kink that you felt ashamed about, it can reinforce a step away from shame and it can reinforce that curiosity was a good thing to do just on a chemical, like a biochemical level. Um, I again, I think there is like some assumptions here that are being made about shame in this little vignette. But I like, I like that they're 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 using words like curiosity and play and comfort. I like that. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about this this brief history of shame, though? No, I mean, like I said, I mean, a lot of this was about sexual curiosity and sexual shame. But I think I think the point really extends far beyond that into all aspects of relationships and life. So yeah, be curious, try new things, question yourself and your beliefs, and it may work out and it may not, but you will probably, you won't, as Claire said, you won't feel worse. You can't feel more shame probably. And you may very well feel better for having tried if it works out or it doesn't. So I like that. I like. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books. <laughs>